Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Manufacturing Culture Podcast, the place where we pull back the curtain on the movers and shakers of the manufacturing industry. I'm your host, Jim Mayer, and folks, today you're going to want to buckle up for a turbocharged ride because we have a duo that represents the perfect synergy between ingenuity and imagination, between industry and artistry, a power team that takes innovation to the next level. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the father-daughter dynamo, Al and Abby Youngworth. Now, let's start with Al. He's a man who has never met a problem he couldn't code, build, or innovate his way out of. With a rich career spanning over 35 years, Al has been instrumental in creating disruptive, high-value products which make a monumental difference in our lives. After making a successful exit from his first endeavor, Apex Technology, Al shifted gears and brought us Recluse Motorsports, revolutionizing the world of high-performance motorcycles. If you thought that was impressive, hold on to your hats because Al didn't stop there. With VersaBuilt, he challenged the status quo and is paving the way toward a new future in automation. When he's not reshaping the world of technology, you'll find Al pushing limits, whether it's on two wheels, in the air, or on the racetrack. And speaking of pushing limits, enter Abby, a whirling dynamo in her own right. An accomplished professional cyclist, Abby didn't just break records on the tracks, but went a step further, flexing her creative muscles at the Savannah College of Art and Design. Starting as an intern at VersaBuilt, Abby has peddled her way to become a vital cog in their marketing machine. Her unique blend of creativity, athleticism, and business savvy helps VersaBuilt communicate with its audience on a whole new level. When she's not busy charting out impactful marketing campaigns, Abby explores the great outdoors and finds new artistic inspirations. Together, Al and Abby form a power duo like no other. Their blend of seasoned expertise and youthful innovation is not only redefining the future of manufacturing, but also inspiring the industry as a whole. Ladies and gentlemen, let's shift into high gear and welcome our guests, Al and Abby Youngworth. Alan Abby, thank you for being on today. Welcome to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. How are you doing? Great, great. And thanks for that introduction. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm super pumped. Uh, you two, uh, Abby specifically, uh, reached out. You took the survey on the uh, manufacturingculturepodcast.com website. Uh, we had a conversation and it was almost like it was meant to be. It was it was a great, very natural conversation. I love what you both have done. Um, and Abby, originally, I think you wanted it just to be Al on here. Um, but after our conversation, I couldn't let you not be a guest as well. So thank you for joining us uh, as well today. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we jump into our typical uh, first question, uh, Talk to us guys about VersaBuilt. What is VersaBuilt? What do you do? How many employees do you have? Give us a rundown. 
Yeah, so uh, VersaBuilt is coming up on 10 years uh, of age. And uh, we, we have 11 employees. Awesome. And we do automation for high mix CNC manufacturing. Um, we, we take a, a, a different approach than how robotics has, has typically been applied to CNC manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Robotics has typically been uh, targeted towards uh, Im- improving the efficiency of the machine and focused on high volume applications. Right. But most manufacturing in the United States is not high volume, it's high mix. Yeah. And uh, my company, Recluse Motorsports, uh, was a, a very high mix manufacturing company. Um, and when we decided that automation was the next big step that we wanted to take to improve our operations, uh, we found that there really wasn't anything out there for high mix. So we decided to try and do it on our own. And uh, after kind of uh, fumbling around, kind <laughs> of in fits and spurts, spurts using traditional technologies, uh, one day we finally made a breakthrough in with a, a new idea that's become uh, multi-grip which is a, uh, a milling uh, CNC work holding robotic automation kind of combination that really makes it much easier to integrate new parts uh, for automation into CNC mills and to change over between jobs, Got it. Uh, different parts. Um, so uh, that that's really what VersaBuild is about. We also do lathes now. We have some technology around that. We develop so- software technology as well um, to, to all bring us to kind of that, uh, everything we learned in the 2000s about lean manufacturing, bring that to automation. Awesome. And uh, not only are you building a culture internally at VersaBuild, it sounds like your product is can be instrumental in fostering uh, cultures at, at your customers' uh, facilities. Am I correct? Absolutely. In fact, I would say that if you can't have a shift in culture around automation and around high mix automation, uh, it, it's it's probably not going to go well for you. Um, if you if if you do high mix production, yeah. when I say high mix, what I really mean there is it, traditional automation is really targeted towards no mix or very very limited mix. Sure, you know, and so high mix to some is is batches of ten parts, and and high mix to other to others might be batches of a thousand parts. <laughs> but you know, that's kind of our our sweet spot is kind of like uh, batches of five parts, ten parts, up to maybe. 10,000 parts um, oh, wow. at a time. So, and, you know, one of the key things when you, when you bring in automation and you're doing high mix is you got to apply those same principles uh, that, that we learned in lean manufacturing to make high mix work. You got to bring those same things to automation. And that means standardizing on fixturing, um, focusing on, making it easy for the operator to change between jobs and, and make it fast. Yeah. Um, and which is, which can be kind of opposed to some of the traditional um, automation objectives around, you know, maximizing the throughput of the system 
or maximizing the, the, the runtime of the system. Yeah. So awesome. uh, that, that, those cultural shifts are really important. It's, it's a big part of how we sell and how we train. That's phenomenal. And let's dive into that uh, a little bit later. First, let's talk about the, the cultural journey that you've had at VersaBuild. I mean, you're, you're, you're 10 years into this journey. Abby joined somewhere along the way. Uh, so Al, uh, pre-Abby, um, pre-now, what was the culture like in the early stages of VersaBuild um, as you, you started the, this different uh, company from Recluse? Yeah, so I'd say that um, the culture of VersaBuild really dates back to my first job out of college okay. um, here, here in Boise at a company called Extended Systems. And Extended Systems was a company that was formed from uh, executives at Hewlett Packard. And so a lot of the culture that exists in VersaBuilt today is some of the core culture that came out of Hewlett Packard. And I would say at its core, what was kind of ingrained in us as young engineers uh, was that if you make innovative products mm -hmm. that provide value to your customers and you support them well, uh, then they'll keep coming back to you and growing your business without spending a whole lot of money on marketing fluff. Sure. Um, and, and so that, that culture of innovation, um, doing well and listening to and taking care of the customer uh, is something that uh, has, has been a part of every business I've been involved in ever since and, and is, is a big part of VersaBuilt's culture. And I'd say another phrase that, that I, I use a lot is especially around the innovation side is good enough is not good enough you know we keep making things better and that 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 keeps people thinking you know to you know constant improvement yeah um, not and not just in technology but um in how we do things yeah um, and that that's especially important when you're you know when you're a, a product engineer it, it really is all about the innovation but when you're also making things and and the product engineers are tied to manufacturing it's it's about more than that. It's about processes and 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 helping make people successful. Great. Um, it sounds like a very intentional uh, cultural journey that you're on. It is. It is. I do think a lot of that before me was kind of in the background. Like we weren't advertising our level of support. Okay. Now we very much are. Yeah. And, <laughs> And I think that goes back again to one of the things I said that 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 initial company I worked for was marketing, spending money on marketing and doing marketing isn't all that important if you make really innovative products and you take care of your customers. Sure. And I would say that has been a personal weakness of mine that I've carried through over the years because uh, I'm just not very good about telling the world that my stuff is better, right? And Abby <laughs> has, has helped a lot there in, in helping us get our message across and, and not being ashamed of, B of. Building more of a brand rather than marketing our product. Like yeah. building a brand that tells people we are, your success is our success. Yep. Sure. In and order that, for 
us to succeed is you are making all of your parts at, in a timely manner with our systems and you want to buy another one. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. So Abby, where, from your perspective, when you joined Versabil as an intern and then uh, as a full-time employee, what was the culture like in, in, from your perspective? I mean, it, it's a great product. I think um, once it's been installed, people really understand that. But before they've gotten their hands on it, it's kind of a hard thing to explain to people. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been working on... I don't know, just like trying to get people to trust us. Got it. And trust I think the brand. That, exactly. Yeah, and I think so. some of that is because we do it differently than pretty much not. I'm not saying everybody else. We were. I would say that we were really kind of first in this space of selling automation as a standard product that was targeted at high mix. But now there's others, but it's still not the norm. Sure. You know, most the culture around robotics and automation is still customize everything. Yeah. And then you're just not going to get very far customizing stuff like, right. You know, we don't build very many custom CNC's anymore mm -hmm. because we figured out building a standard CNC makes a lot more sense. So we're still kind of bucking that trend. And, and it's funny, it was quite similar with recluse because when we started in recluse, we, you know, we, we were selling a, automatic clutch for high performance motorcycles and it's the same kind of thing no one really else nobody else really was and everyone was like why would i need that yeah um, and it's it's the same thing here and so a big part of our success is helping people to understand um why you might want something like this and how it benefits and sure i think it's important to take another step back to the people who have it in their culture that automation takes jobs away. Oh, yeah. system, like it, it has been proven over and over and over to us that operators love the system. It's not taking away their job. It's making it a better job. <laughs> it's giving them more value in their own uh, company. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And improve, it improves their job. It makes it a lot easier for them to be successful. And they may come start with skepticism, but mostly, not always, but mostly it's the operators that like the equipment the most. Yeah. It, it improves the employee experience. Uh, yeah. it, and when you improve the employee experience, you improve employee engagement with the organization as a whole. And when you improve that engagement level, you get discretionary effort and, and people will tend to go that extra mile, quote unquote, for, for you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, where do you want to get the culture to at Versabil internally? Not, not necessarily externally, but internally, how, uh, what are your plans to scale beyond the, the staff that you have? Uh, and, and what role will culture play in that? Well, um, that's a great question, and and we have kind of a uh, uh, a long history that's uh, been kind of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. um, we back in two thousand eighteen, after growing the business quite a bit, we we learned that it was too expensive for us to scale based around an industrial robot, 
Um, so we actually scaled the business back some. Basically, you know, when there's a problem in the field, you know, historically automation has been deployed through regional custom system integrators. Mm -hmm. So if there's a problem with the with the robot, someone flies out from the factory, fixes the robot, and then someone locally from that did the system integration comes in and puts it back together, puts the application back together. Sure. Well, we had a batch of robots that you know we bought that all ended up going bad out in the field under warranty, but uh, every time they went bad, we had to fly somebody out the next day, um, and it really hurt our momentum and and um, slowed us down. And so we decided to get out of the business with the industrial robots and and focus on the collaborative robots because the end user. Um, could would would be better equipped to actually, um, if there was a, a warranty problem with the robot, to get it back into working order. Um, so that that created a shift for us. You know, it kind of it was culturally it was a setback to us. You know, after mm -hmm. after after growing a lot and having a lot of success, and then kind of getting uh, slapped down. Um, so we kind of hit a reset button culturally. And, uh, and, and from the business, we uh, ended up licensing that product to a, a company that was much better equipped to, uh, because they had offices all over the country to, to manage that type of thing. Sure. And then um, kind of reinvented ourselves around this, uh, the, the, a similar product based upon the learnings that we got and with a collaborative robot. And, and it's really, you know, just as we introduced that was, you know, COVID came out. So that, that <laughs> again provided a number of challenges for us. Yeah. Um, so culturally, we've kind of been in this purgatory area for the last few years. And, um, you know, we, we've, we've, we're a tight team. Most of this team to, has been together for uh, eight, nine years now. Um, wow. Abby's, Abby's the second newest employee. I think. Yeah, I'm yeah. on three years. Yep, yep. So, um, so I think our, you know, main challenge is coming going forward with with culture is to do the things that we have been doing, but um, learn how to market ourselves, not just to customers but to the distribution channel, which tends to be mostly CNC dealers mm -hmm. and, and even the robot suppliers themselves, because um, the, the robot suppliers are still kind of built around this model that, you know, Hey, if we make it a robots easy to use and give a, a full catalog of accessories, you know, any problem can be solved. Well, right. any problem might be able to be solved, but you know, if you buy a robot and it can only make one part and then to make the next part, requires a four over four hour changeover you're just you're sending people backwards yeah um and so uh a lot of our culture has to shift around marketing um and getting the message out about why you should be choosing automation designed for high mix mm -hmm. um rather than trying to cobble together you know little science projects to to do things and part of our effort um in kind of pushing that message is like having our employees, our machinists that have been in the job for decades, go onto forums like Reddit and Practical Machinist and just give tips. Yeah. Like build 
build trust with our customers and even not customers, just people in the field and help bring an understanding that we know what we're doing. And yeah. And we can help them. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It, you're, you got to build that moat around your, your customer base, the end user customer base. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say the end users, but also the, the people that the end users go to for, as their trusted advisors. And that's, that's sure. certainly going to be CNC machine deal dealers, but also influ influencers like yourself and others. Oh, that's, that's so wild, Al, that you say that. I was at an event last week, and uh, for the first time in my professional career, somebody used that word, influencer, in referencing me. And it was the weirdest moment because I, I don't consider myself that at all. Uh, yes. I'm just a guy who loves this industry and won't shut up about it, quite frankly, right? Uh, but thank you very much. Uh, and I think that's where where marketing efforts has changed. And, and Abby, I think that you bring uh, that different perspective, um, right? I mean, you've been your you know, I mean, the first time we spoke, I think you had just gotten off the snowboard trails, uh, right? Uh, when we had our video chat. So you, you, you're bringing a different viewpoint, uh, perspective to, to versatility. It sounds like talk yeah. to us about that experience. I, I mean, I honestly coming in as an intern, I didn't know what we did at Versabilt for the first uh, <laughs> four months. I'd okay. Say. I, um, I've never been involved in robotics. I've always had my dad and my family really involved in it and uh, the, the manufacturing industry. Yeah. Um, so it took me a, a while to learn and figure out this industry and the people that I need to be talking to. And I come from a, a background in athleticism. I've been racing professionally on teams for 10 years. So I think I brought a, kind of a need for teamwork and communication um, internally, okay. which is something that I value a lot. And I don't know if, if, if my being here has made it better for oh, myself. Oh, yeah. I mean, we are just a bunch of engineers. Is the <laughs> and, and this is the part of the culture that, that most needs to shift for us. And, it, and, it's, and it's, it's, we, again, this goes back to me and how I, I was brought up in the industry and just being an engineer. Sure. We just want to make good things and expect people to buy them. And yeah. understand and understand them and and then I've hired a bunch of people that are like that too and with recluse we were we were we we still never really invested a lot in marketing we just went to races and rode with people and they got to try it out so it was a lot easier to kind of spread the message and the value proposition you can't do that in 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 this market um, sure. Uh, Machine shops don't talk to each other uh, much, and it, it's actually hard sometimes to get testimonials because machine shops don't want to give away their secrets, right? That, that's exactly. another. I've been trying to like adjust industry philosophy, and in these people want to keep their secrets, and it. I, 
Why? Why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, so we've challenged some people on that. And Abby's made a lot of, you know, breakthroughs, I think, with, you know, like I, I think about, you know, a pretty big company that's a customer of ours. And we were trying to, we had a, a magazine approach as, hey, can you give us a good customer example of this kind of particular application? I was like, oh, man, this company would be awesome. But I don't think we'll ever do it. Abby reached out to it. And, they, and he said, I'll do what I, I'll see what I can do. And sure enough, he got it done. Wow. And I think a lot of that has to do with the relationships that Abby has built and built with a focus on trust and a getting our customers to understand that, uh, hey, man, we could, we've helped you. We could really use your help to promote us. I and, experience and, that uh, all the time um, with my consulting side of my business. Uh, I, I work with companies on company culture and employee engagement and not one machine shop that I've worked with wants to provide a testimonial to say we had a bad culture and now we fixed it. Right. Because that's giving away now secret sauce on how they're <laughs> able to get their, you know, more employees through the door. Um, so Abby, maybe you and I can have, uh, uh, an offline chat about how I could approach that a different way, uh, because, I don't know. I'm obviously doing something wrong. So maybe you can help me. Yeah, I think I think there's opportunity there. And there's opportunity for the machine shops that I think are still in that mindset. And, and keep in mind that in general, the industry is very conservative. And I'm, I don't mean politically. I mean, uh, and how they run their business and, and how they, 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 they don't um, embrace change as, as, as much as a lot of other industries do. And a lot of that has to do with the investments that they make in capital equipment purchases yeah. and that they're making these big investments that they have to hold on to for, you know, typically not less than 10 years yeah. uh, to get a good return on that investment. Um, so uh, I, I think that the, some of the culture derives from that. And, and I, I do think, though, there, there is value in helping people change that culture, you know, not, not applying that same level of conservatism to all aspects of their business. Yeah. Uh, so how do, how do you balance that, that drive for technological advancement um, while helping your, your customers uh, maintain that strong, healthy company culture? Well, um, so one thing that is always a challenge with ambitious engineers <laughs> is, and, and we are a group of ambitious engineers, is to not do too, too many things too quickly. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, the the right wrist is has the throttle but you know there's also the front brake there too <laughs> you got to have a good balance between acceleration and, and and keeping everything under control so you know we we do have a moderate amount of structure in our organization about um, how we introduce ne new technology to companies so that um, we don't uh, make things worse we keep you know, we make things better. That doesn't mean we don't always get it 100% right. But again, going back to the the customer service oriented culture, we do everything we can to make it right. Yeah. Um, and our product supports that. Like, yeah, it's it's easy to update. It's easy to access remotely. For yeah. Support. So, uh, you know, 
although the last 20 years of my career have been largely mechanically engineering focused, my background's in computer science. So um, we all, every one of our products uh, connects to the internet and, and uh, we can have the end user enable us access to the product to provide uh, support and training and software updates. That's great. Um, so that is a key part of scaling our business and uh, helping customers understand that that we are a a good alternative to a local custom system integrator that you know, that might be just on the do the road, um, but we don't have to even drive down the road. We can literally, you know, you're having a problem. Give me a minute here. Okay, I'm logged into your system. I see what's going on. Yeah. Um, and and so we can we're innovative in that regard in in our ability to uh, help support customers. Awesome. No, no one's left without their machines running for yeah. days and days. <laughs> yeah. So you two play off of each other very well, and this was part of the reason, Abby, that I insisted that you be part of this. You 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 two function at a very high level together. Um, so I'm curious, and I'm sure the people who are listening are curious as well, uh, to know a little bit more about the father-daughter dynamic there. Uh, <laughs> how has it impacted uh, professional, personal relationships, uh, all of the above? Well, honestly, it, I was not, um, both my brothers worked at Versabilt at one point or another, and and I was always like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but my dad and I have a really great relationship. As a cyclist, he traveled with me across the country and the world. The world, the world yeah. And wow. uh, we like really similar things, motorcycle riding, bike riding, grabbing a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, it was like, it, it just made sense. Sure. And we we go out to lunch i don't know three times a week and just have like these great conversations where we're not just talking about the business we're talking about life but how we can incorporate the two and yep. make both better yeah you know nepotism is always you know something uh to be careful about especially sure. with respect to other people you know in the organization mm -hmm. um and you know perceptions around how people are treated and things like that so it it's something that we're we are very aware of and but i think one of the things if you came to to versabilt and kind of just sat as a fly on the wall you you'd quickly learn that um you know although there is definitely respect amongst us all deep down we're all really good friends too um, That's cool. and you got to be careful about that because sure um it can it can also create opportunities for people to take advantages of situations mm -hmm. but we have you know really open communication everyone is empowered um to to do not just their job but help around them. It's also one of the great things about being a smaller organization. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing I would, I would just say about me and my kids, and I, I, I feel incredibly lucky 
we work really well together and and they're some of my best friends you know that's awesome we we, we really have a good time together we, we do a lot of stuff together we hang out together um we enjoy a lot of the same activities together and it's funny they don't all have the same hobbies but we all share some hobbies yeah. together i would say um traveling is one of them but you know uh cycling or motorcycling or high performance cars um ai yeah ai is becoming a, <laughs> and we all like tech too right so that's awesome uh, and uh the photo you guys sent me of you two together is maybe <laughs> one of my favorite photos that has been provided to me for marketing purposes. So uh, I can't wait for people to see that as, as part of the marketing collateral. And yeah. that was, that was right, just about a year before, ago. right before the Idaho city 100, my first motorcycle race. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a fun day. Unfortunately her bike broke early. Yeah. Oh no. But we had a great time. Yeah. yeah. So Abby, let, let's talk about motors or let's bicycle racing, right? Uh, so I I've never met virtually on the phone or in person a bicycle professional bicycle racer. <laughs> I mean, and my entire I, I have two perceptions of what bicycle racing is: is a Tour de France, b that sh track at the Olympics where. I, I get nauseous just watching them go around in circles like that. So what what kind of racing did you do? Doing it. Um, I, all of the above. Um, I started as a, a mountain bike rider racer and then got more and more into the road scene. Okay. And um, yeah, I just, I got into the development programs through USA Cycling and then went to Europe, spent a lot of time in Belgium racing around and then raced with Team USA uh, 2017 and 2018 across Europe. And then I, I uh, when I went to college, I wanted to kind of dial back the professional bike racer life. Yeah. And we started doing, at the time it was called USA Crits, uh, really short courses, about an hour. Okay. Um, really friendly to spectators and I yeah. fell typically in, in downtowns yeah. of cities. Yeah. Okay, cool. I fell in love with it. That's um, awesome. I did that for another few years. And after I graduated, I decided it was time to have a real life job and <laughs> get a house, settle down. Why not now? So being from uh, the Boise area, living, traveling throughout Europe, how did you land on Savannah College of Art and Design? Good question. <laughs> I definitely never saw myself moving to Georgia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was approached for an athletic scholarship, and I went for it. it. Wow. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I fell in love with Savannah. Uh, the school was absolutely amazing. I, I'd say the biggest takeaway for me is like less about the education, more about the social uh, dynamics and also the ability to give and get critiqued ah. I use every single day. That's, 
that's a valuable life skill right there. Yeah. Um, and if you need some fabric woven, she can do it. I sure can. <laughs> okay. I like it. I like it. Um, so, Al, you went from, you've had multiple, uh, you know, entrepreneurial journeys here. Uh, some might say serial entrepreneur. Um, talk to us about how you came up with Recluse Motorsports. Was that born from your love of motorcycles and your connection that it brings you with your kids? And then how did Recluse help shape uh, what Versabilt is now? Um, yeah, so I, I've been a motorcycle nut since I was eight years old and saw the movie on any Sunday. Okay. Um, I just re I'd moved when I was about eight years old to uh, a little town called, it was a little town at the time called Gilroy, California out in the country. And it had lots and lots of open spaces, lots of cow trails that we hiked around. And I saw this movie, these guys riding their motorcycles on the cow trails. And I was like, that's what I need. That's what I have to have. And, <laughs> and so I, I, I became just a dirt biking nut rode almost every day, every, you know, throughout the year. And, and then when I went to college, that got severely curtailed. Um, I, I did pick up mountain biking, which was, you know, good kind of an in-betweener, but I really missed motorcycling. So when I graduated, one of the things I decided I wanted to do is go someplace where I could have really ready access to really good dirt bike riding. And, and so Idaho fit that bill for me. And I, I sought out a job here in Idaho and, and really just loved dirt biking here um, awesome. dirt biked a lot uh, until I started having kids. And then I kind of backed off a bit in the, those years still had a dirt bike, but you know, I wasn't, you know, riding uh, once or twice a month. I was riding maybe three times or four times a summer. Got and it. Then, um, fast forward late nineties, you know, the kids are all out of diapers at this point, kind of, <laughs> moving along and, and kind of wanted to start to introduce them to dirt bikes and got myself a, a newer dirt bike and, and had sold, uh, we had sold apex technology and I was kind of figuring out what to do next. And, and I bought a new dirt bike and I loved it, but it kept stalling a lot. Um, in, in the kind of conditions I was riding it was a four stroke was some of the early four stroke high performance motorcycles. Mm -hmm. They did that a lot. And I'd heard about this new, automatic clutch. Um, and I bought one. Um, it was, a, it was another company that was making them. And I really liked how it worked, but it kept breaking mm. and the company was not, you know, they, I, I call them up, tell them what's going on. Like, well, you, you put something together wrong and, you know, take it apart, do this, put it back together. And like, no, I'm not doing something wrong. This part keeps wearing out and <laughs> it's sending metal all the way through my, you know, brand new motorcycle engine. Yeah. And, uh, and then eventually they stopped returning my calls um, <laughs> and I got on the internet and realized a lot of other people were having those problems and worse problems. And so I was taking this, you know, thousand dollar, you know, accessory that I bought out realizing, you know, I'm going to have to throw this away. And as I'm taking it out, I thought, well, the reason it's failing is because the way they engineered this, they mounted this thing on the basket. That's too much weight for it. You know, if we could move the weight to the transmission shaft that would solve that problem. But, Oh, then when this other problem would be creating, I kind of worked through it and then kind of came up with a design in my head that evening. 
and drew it out on paper. And I think I pulled an all nighter kind of doing research on, you know, okay, if I did this, how would I go about doing it? What would it take? And, you know, could I patent it? What would, what would the market size be? And uh, I decided to go for it, to give it a try. And I gave myself a budget and um, some engineering. I found some engineering help because I, I didn't really know how to do any 3D modeling. Sure. Um, and got a first prototype made and it worked. And wow. that was kind of the, the start of that journey. Um, so we, that company did really well, but we were largely focused on the, you know, explosive growth that we were having and just, you know, trying to stay ahead of the, of the growth. And we got to a point where we had done pretty well, uh, keeping up with the gr growth and we we're probably, um, about 10 years in, but one year, you know, got to the bottom line and uh, I looked at the financial statements and the profit, the net profit we made was less than the revenue that we had got from the scrap aluminum that we sold to recycling. No. I, I realized, I mean, we do all this and I make a little bit of money off of the scraps. <laughs> and I thought, okay. I need to figure out how to, you know, we've done a great job being an engineering company and, and, and growing this and doing all these things, but we've got to get good at operations. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, spent probably stepped down from, you know, running the company uh, and, and being the lead engineer to focusing on operations and a lot of focus on lean manufacturing Um a lot of focus on measurements, you know, can't improve if you can't measure, making making people individually or, or, or teams aware of their measurements, you know, creating a culture uh, around accountability, um, allowing, allowing people to see, you know, because a lot of people have the same jobs. Maybe there's the day shift or the night shift or in sales, mm -hmm. you know, people and like, all right, guys, you know, now that you can all see how you're doing, let's see, you know, who can win. And, you know, it, and it really became a very competitive environment. You know, we always made sure that we structured it so it was not a, uh, it, it could it could become a negative thing, but um, it, it, it really made a huge difference. And then ultimately we came down to like, our next major step is that our business is highly, highly seasonal. Mm. Our demand month was typically more than twice the, the customer demand of our lowest demand month. Sure. We couldn't really be making it up and, and lean accounting principles told us not to just overbuild. Um, and there was real, we, and we didn't, when we did try and overbuild, we, we often found that we chose the wrong things to over, overproduce on and, and motorcycles are constantly changing and, and demands are always changing. So we determined that the, the, the our main constraints to, to, to more growth um, and better operational performance was reduced dependence on hiring new operator labor to meet our the peak demands uh, for customer demands, and that's what got us started on VersaBuilt. And, and right from the start, you know, we set out our expectations: is you know, this automation equipment has can't 
have more change over time than our current um, uh, CNC processes. And we've gotten all those things down to like five, 10 minutes. Wow. Uh, change over times. And uh, so, and then, like I said, we, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of stumbled through it for the first six months. We got about maybe five or 10% of our parts, parts automated, mostly focused on a couple of part families. And then to get the, the next batch of parts in, we were going to have to totally redesign the system. And that's when someone came up with this idea, like, why don't we have the robot pick up the, the vice jaws instead of the part? Yeah. And, and move those things, move the jaws around. And it, it was absolutely revolutionary for us. Once we got that implemented, um, six more months and we had, you know, 500 part numbers automated. Wow. That's awesome. As someone that is coming into automation new, like I was listening to one of our customers talk about this. He he had asked a local integrator what it would cost to automate a, a single part family. Mm -hmm. He's a job, so loads of different part families. And they gave him a quote for about $250,000 for one part family. Wow. And he asked them, all right, so... What about for the next part family? And they said $250,000 more. <laughs> Our system costs about $90,000 installed and about $100 to add new parts. Yeah. And he told me the other day, uh, he now has four systems. Uh, he, he said, I'm not taking on any new jobs that I'm not confident I can automate. Wow. That's mm -hmm. interesting. So <laughs> how, how do you guys suggest... Uh, these job shops, right? High mix shops uh, that don't have a system in place like VersaBuilt. How, how, how can they get started? Because I think that's a, a really daunting part of this is people just don't even know how to get started. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I first encourage them to give us a call. You know, um, I, I definitely will sometimes listen to a customer and say, uh, for what you need to do on that particular machine, you need to go talk to a custom system integrator because almost always when a customer comes to us, they're coming to us with the one machine in their shop or a small group of machines that are the highest volume, lowest mix because of all their preconceived notions about automation. Their preconceived notions about automation are that I have to bring in somebody else to integrate that part into the automation and that it's going to cost a lot. And if, if I change over the part, it's going to, it's going to cost a lot. Yeah. Um, and if, if you truly have a high volume problem, we probably are, are often not the best solution. Um, and when I say high volume, that means like you, you, you're going to be running one part or a small family of parts on one machine and you know you got contracts for the seven, next seven years, you can afford to, to develop a custom solution around that. And it's probably going to be a better solution for high mix. But what I tell you, tell customers is, you know, again, not all factories, but most factories in the United States, you might have 5% of the machines that do high mix or excuse me, high volume, low mix. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the machines are high mix, low volume. Yeah. And that's what we're interested in helping them change their culture around so that they can use automation to make their operations better. Yeah. And, you know, one of the first things I want to talk to them about is changing their perceptions about automation. 
with our equipment, we can teach your people how to integrate your, the, the, the parts that you have with our tools. We'll train your people to, to use our equipment so that you're not relying on an out, outside robot system integrator. And we show them that it's really not any harder to, to integrate a part into a CNC with our automation than it is to just integrate the part into the CNC. Sure. Um, and then we show them how you can have five minute changeovers of, of your CNC work holding and your automation work holding. You may have tool change outs for different parts, but if you look at just the CNC work holding side and the automation work holding side, we can do it as fast or faster than any operator tended system out there. So once you kind of break that down, then we talk about, okay, what does the journey look like and where should you start to bring automation into your factory and start to transform how your factory floor works. Mm -hmm. And again, one of the, one of the very first things I want to work on is changing the culture around, especially the people that develop the manufacturing processes. That's usually, you know, the person called the machinist in the shop, but different people call different shops, call them different things. Sure. I tend to call the people that develop, do the cam and develop the CNC process machinist and the people that run it operators. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we want to talk to the, to the management and those people about shifting from manufacturing processes that are focused primarily on CNC efficiency to manufacturing processes that are focused primarily on making the, the operator more efficient running the equipment that's there. Yeah. And that's a big shift. And a lot of people have a hard time with it, and and frankly, some people just can't get past that. Is that um, is that the? It's sorry to interrupt, but is that the yeah. future of of culture and manufacturing? Do you think? It absolutely is, especially if we want to compete worldwide. CNC machine in the United States costs about the same as as it does anywhere else in the world. Right. Um, it's it's that our our labor costs are much higher here. Yeah. And they've got a lot higher. And if you go back to, you know, the early days of CNC machines, like when Haas introduced the, the VF1 back in, you know, I think it was 88 or something like that. Yeah. It cost $50,000. Yep. What does a VF1 cost today? Uh, $50,000, $55,000. Yeah. Yeah. Back then, an operator was making two seventy-five an hour. Maybe a loaded cost of $3.50 an hour. Right. Loaded cost of, you know, hourly rate for an operator now is 18, 20, 22, $24 an hour. Loaded cost might be 30 or more. Yeah. Average, uh, average machinist, uh, manual machinist in the U.S. right now is about 29 an hour. Uh, CNC operator slash machinist, you're, you're looking 24 to 27, depending on where in the country you are. Yeah. And so there's, there's this perception amongst machinists and management that the CNC is the most valuable thing. It's the most expensive thing on their shop floor. Yeah. And what I try and tell people and show them is it's actually probably the least expensive thing on the shop floor. Absolutely. So stop trying to optimize the, the least expensive thing. Um, the thing that's easiest to replace and, and get one of like or better performance by just ordering a new machine and start focusing on making the people that you have to have, even with automation, make them as productive as, as possible in the type of environment that you're running in, which is typically high mix. 
And that means developing processes that uh, use robots to do the dull, dangerous, dirty work that no one wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you might, you're, you're probably going to, if, if you're de- deploying high mix automation, you are probably going to end up with processes that if you watch when the door opens and the robot exchanges the part is slower than what a, a fresh person could do one time. Yeah. And a lot of people have a hard time with it, but um, you will end up with a manufacturing facility that has more capacity, creates parts that are more consistent with fewer quality problems and has less, much, much less total operational costs than operator intensive and machine uh, process efficiency centric uh, machine shops. So Abby, how, how do you, uh, we talked about how your, your, your job is to build that trust with, with your customer base. How do you go about that in, in this marketing role, right? To, to let them know all of that. I mean, that's, that's a, a huge job. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to marketing, how, how do you go about that? Uh, so right now I am putting a pretty big focus on creating a lot of blog posts and then interacting with forums in this industry. Practical mm-hmm. Machine has been a, a big one for me lately. Okay. I see a lot of people talking about like their own a really robot savvy dude that wants a CNC in his garage and programs a rope, a, a collaborative robot to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And I see comments nonstop about how slow the robot is and how like it hurts. It physically hurts these machinists to watch the robot <laughs> that slow. And I like to go in and kind of not advertise our product, but, Tell them that that's certainly something you can focus on, but I put that pretty far down the list of things to focus on. I say focus on automating parts that use similar tools Mm -hmm. so you don't have to go in and change over tools. Focus on parts that can can use existing work holding or work holding that swaps over really easily. Focus on time spent integrating and time spent changing over rather than the robot speed, which is the least, the, the last thing you should really fine tune. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because, you know, in, in some parts are, are a better first fit than others. Right? Sure. If you, have, if you have a part with a one minute cycle time, the, the penalty for the a slow robot is a lot more painful than it is for a part with a 10 minute cycle time. Totally. Makes but sense. In, I, I get back to, to, to people. It doesn't really matter that robot sitting in front of that machine over the, if, if you're buying an, you know, an $85,000 system and you, and, and you keep that system around for, for let's say 15 years, in, including all your costs, you know, it's, it's not a thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. um, and uh, how much is a single operator right. one shift? 
and that thing's ready to, to run three shifts if, if, if needed. And, and so now I, I'd say the other thing though, culturally that we, we, that we are putting more of an effort on now um, and not just with our customers, but especially with our distributors and, and some of the other influencers like the, the robot makers is the, the traditional approach to robot automation and, and the structure of robots themselves is not well suited to mixed workflows. I'll, I'll use the term mixed workflows okay. uh, for, for as a general term across a lot of different things like welding, palletizing, you know, things sure. like machine tending. Uh, they are, they are, you know, teach pendant is really good at like teach this point, then move here, pick up this thing, then move here, pick up this thing and move here. Yep. Um, but it's not really well suited to, if you need to do that for 60 different parts where everything needs to be a little bit different, but it's all kind of the same. Now you got 60 different programs. Got it. So another key thing for us, it wasn't the first thing we implemented, but you know, right after multi-grip, the next thing we recognized is uh, having a bunch of different programs is not manageable at all, you know, robot programs. And, and trying to create something that teach pendant's not gonna work. So we created software, again, as a, my background is as a software engineer. Right. That's, that is what's called parametric um, uh, approach to, to uh, um, machine tending or, or, or robot processing. And that is, we have one program, we have a dedicated user interface that's, that's targeted, not general purpose to, to do everything from, you know, deburring to painting to machine tending. It's only for machine tending. And instead of someone have to learn how to program a robot and every time they want to have a, a new robot program, open the last one they did, do file, save as, new part number, and having 30 different programs that are kind of alike, but not all the same. We have an interface where they, when they want to create a new part, they create a new part configuration and it asks them things about that part. You know, what's the, the part height, the width, the length, the weight, you know, what's the op one program, the op two program. So using software technology also to make that truly a tool that's designed for high mix. Yeah. Um, and not just this general purpose thing. You know, a lot of people make really cool science projects that, that can do big productive things, but I would put our system up with our software and our, our, our you know, dedicated CNC robot and CNC work holding technology. And in terms of those, what I think are the most important factors to consider time time and cost it takes to integrate a new part into the system and then time to change over um we really can't be beat there yeah and that's that, again not for everybody but most applications that's what's most important and thanks for walking us through that you can't see me but the entire time i was just nodding and taking notes so uh <laughs> that was great information thanks al um the, the last question I typically ask uh, guests is to talk about three initiatives that you have implemented that has improved culture or that you're planning on implementing to improve the culture. Um, and, and so uh, if you guys could share those uh, with us, um, but it doesn't just have to be 
uh, internally at Versabil. If, if you have some that uh, other uh, companies, people who are listening could implement uh, potentially using automation, uh, I'd definitely be open to that. What are, what are three initiatives that, that you guys could, could leave for the listeners? Well, I, I'm going to put the first one in is like building our brand out. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of research into product-based marketing mm-hmm. versus brand-based marketing. And we've been doing product-based marketing for the last 10 years. Beating our chest about how great our product is. Right. Yeah. And, and like you have just said, there's, I mean, it's a great great freaking product wonderful product and there's like you can go on and on about how capable and how it can improve your business for days really right until the customer's glossy eye yeah. and- <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to i'm trying to catch catch them before we even talk to them about our product and prove that that we're people to trust and my way of doing that is finding trusted routes like blogs and forums yeah. in this industry and reaching out that way. Because then it, it, when they do need something that you offer, you're going to be the first person they think of, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so Abby's focus is just critical for our growth. And, and, and I think what she is really doing is, is telling the world about who we are yeah, and, and the culture of who we are and what we do. What, what, one of the things that we do every year is the whole team stops for a day. We don't answer the phones. Um, and we don't, we don't do anything except get in a room and we, we talk about, uh, we call it our strategic planning session. Okay. And we talk about what we, what we wanted to accomplish in the year before, um, what we need to accomplish in the next year. And then we talk about who we are and what we do and who we want to be and uh uh and do we need to make adjustments to our culture to kind of reach those objectives i love it um, and then and then the other thing that we do and um uh is that we have these poster boards up that we keep up and around so that it's not just something that you know happened one time in one meeting you know some years ago it's something that we see every day you walk into the door of versabilt and there's there's one stairway without a door but then <laughs> where most visitors come in but the the door that we all come in uh has a big poster board that you know says who we are you know what we do and what we you know aspire to be i love it and, and so, so your uh, mission and vision statements are, are there. Uh, I, I, I would not call them a, a, I wouldn't call it a mission statement. Okay. I, I, would, I would call it, you know, it is, a, it's, it's, it's more oriented towards an individual personally connecting with our culture. I would, uh, I more would of a vision to a vision board. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. Vision. Well, because yeah, around what and visions more more around kind of who I, I feel who and how yeah who and how yeah. got it I like it uh, yeah you got to have that alignment you got to have people living that culture for the culture to uh, exist right um, yeah. 
Uh, and I got to back up to that second, uh, your, your strategic plan sessions. When you said that you were uh, once a year, you, you don't answer phones, et cetera. I really thought you were going to say you guys just go out and ride motorcycles all day. I thought that. <laughs> yeah. well, we, that's, we do something along that line yeah. as well. After. Afterwards. After the meeting, you go ride motorcycles. Okay. That makes yeah, sense. Well, yeah. This last time we did axe throwing. I, that's still on brand. I, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. That is completely 100% on brand. I don't know you guys very well, but from what I do know, that's completely on brand. Yeah. Um, well, I would love to come up at some point and throw axes. I'm not a, a very good rider of motorcycles. I've been on a couple in my life and uh, have scars to prove it. Um, but I would love to come up, check out your facility, throw some axes with you, uh, and just enjoy uh, the Boise life. Uh, it sounds like a, a, a really neat place to come visit. Do you guys have any parting uh, comments, thoughts uh, for for the listeners today? Well, I think to you, Jim, I, I want to thank you for inviting us on on this uh, podcast. Um, when I heard the the terms, you know, culture manufacturing podcast, uh, that was that really you know struck a, a chord with me, just because I I learned how important culture was early on in my career and it 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 has been I, I would say of all the little things I've learned and done over the years it's 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 really I think the most important yeah um, especially as you know one of the things I was able to do really successfully when I wanted to was step away from recluse uh -huh. and it ran without me because I had built the culture yeah. Absolutely. Um, so it, culture is also a secession plan. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. A, we might even have to do a part two, guys, because I <laughs> feel like there's so many things that, that we haven't. Maybe maybe it's a live or on-site recording of, of yeah. Uh, part two. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to say that you and any of your listeners are, are welcome to, to come here and check out what we do and meet the people. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd the, uh, there's probably more than 25, less than 30 robots running yep. in this facility. I'd, I'd oh. love to check that out. And, and uh, as we get into summer here in Phoenix, it would be very nice to come up to Idaho and get out of the heat. My wife would hate me for a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to make that happen. And uh, we've had an, another... Uh, actual father-daughter duo from Metal Quest uh, in Idaho uh, on the podcast earlier, uh, a couple of, oh. maybe a month and a half ago, and they invited me. Uh, so I'm going to just make an Idaho trip and come see you in Metal Quest uh, all in one trip. Oh, great. Two birds, one yeah. stone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and Al, you're very welcome. This was wonderful. It was a great conversation. Uh, it, folks, there you have it. This was it. Uh, it's been a, an amazing ride with this uh, duo, Al and Abby. Um, we, we've journeyed through their experiences at Versabilt. We've explored uh, the nuances of their father-daughter relationship within this business setting. And we've even taken a look at 
uh, Al said it, I agree wholeheartedly what the future of culture and manufacturing is. Um, from their cultural journey at Versabilt uh, to their impactful initiatives that will and continue to enhance a company culture, Alan Abbey exemplified the transformative power of innovative leadership and strong commitment to fostering a vibrant workplace. Uh, as they have brilliantly showed us, it's more uh, it's about more than just manufacturing. It's about building a culture that supports, inspires, and drives forward progress and, and values that human uh, touch. Uh, we hope that their stories have not only entertained you, but also sparked new ideas on how you can cultivate and evolve the culture within your uh, professional spheres. Remember, you can always listen to this episode and more by visiting our website at manufacturingculturepodcast.com. While you're there, dive into the archives of past episodes, uh, some of which feature uh, some of the most influential voices uh, in the manufacturing industry. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I have a very small favor to ask of you. Share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you know who is passionate about manufacturing or culture, one or the other, uh, or both. Also, please take a moment to rate and review our show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It really helps the show. It, it sends it up the charts. It's not for me. It's not because I, it makes me feel good. It's because the more people who rate and review the show, the more people see it when they're searching for new shows. Uh, and your feedback helps uh, me continually grow uh, and improve the show to reach more listeners and bring more valuable content. So remember, every day is a great day to make something new, uh, to push boundaries, to innovate, and to shape the future. Have a great day and keep making things. Mm -hmm.